Good morning, I'm Paul, host of the new PL podcast and founder of the new PL Brand Purpose Institute, where we work with business leaders, employees, and entrepreneurs just like you, and we empower them to build brands with purpose, on purpose. So if you have a question about how to build more engaged, creative, and collaborative cultures and leaders, we'd love to chat. Just get in touch at principlesandleadership.com. And this week, our shout out goes out to Vietnam, another one of the nearly 90 countries the new PNL is listened to in. A massive thank you to all of our listeners in Vietnam for your ongoing support and belief in our global movement for more principled leadership and more purpose-led business. You are an important part of this movement. And if you want to help us keep it growing, I encourage you to send a link or a recommendation to your colleagues, your managers, your business networks right across Vietnam. Let's keep the global movement for a new PNL growing. This week, we speak to Dr. Doina Ionescu, Managing Director for UK and Ireland for pharmaceutical giant Merck. Since joining Merck as a research scientist in 1998, Doina has held a diverse range of roles within the company including corporate business development, corporate mergers and acquisitions, and commercial operations, cumulating in her being appointed as MD in 2020. And in June this year, she was also elected to the Board of Directors for the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industry. She also represents Merck on the European Medicines Group, contributing towards the development of its policy positions and advocacy efforts. So Doina, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Very nice to meet you, Paul. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. Um, if we could start by giving listeners just a, a brief overview of what you do and your role as Man Managing Director of Merck and, uh, and a quick sort of overview of your time at Merck as well. Um, I'm the General Manager for Merck Serono, UK and Ireland. I started this position um, in the middle of the pandemic, actually in 2020. It was a very interesting time. I have been with Merck uh, for over 24 years. Mm -hmm. um, so my whole life, my whole professional life was very much linked to Merck. I'm really lucky in that sense because at Merck, diversity and inclusion is um, ingrained in all the core values. The reason I stayed at Merck for such a long time is because the company's values completely overlap mine. Right. Things like uh, respect, responsibility, integrity, trust, courage are values that are very relevant to me. I am at Merck because uh, I have been given the opportunity to um, um, have different positions and to grow in the company. Um, I started off as a research scientist, um, you know, good many years ago, and uh, um, I grew from that one. My experience has been always positive, and I had the feeling that I belong. I had the feeling that I contributed, and I was listened to whatever idea, whatever creative idea I had, at Merck I could share it in, I could discuss it, I could disagree, and uh, we made a decision and moved forward. I think Merck is a great company to work for. So you've held, according to my research, nearly a dozen roles over that 24-year period, and you will have seen as a young person the impact of the decisions leaders were making on you as an employee, and now as the managing director of the UK and Ireland, you're now taking those decisions on behalf of others. So I wanted to start the podcast by asking you what, what leadership means to you? How do you define it? And, and how do you deliver that definition practically in the business? A leader to me is a manager with a vision. To me, a manager is controlling people, is controlling tasks, is controlling projects. 
a leader doesn't need to do that because by definition, a leader um, relies on trust, on giving people credit, on creating the right environment to bring the best out of people. When I joined Merck, I was a research scientist in the research and development division. I was very lucky along the lines of meeting great people, great leaders that uh, really took a chance on me. Yes. I remember in the early days, um, as a research scientist at Merck, um, I came in with the confidence of the expert. I came in with the arrogance of the young, with uh, the defensive attitude um, of a female in a male-dominated world that was there 30 years ago. Yes. At some point in that position, I made a mistake in my work in one of the projects I was working on. Uh, I realized that mistake only down the line and the results I got were skewed. Uh, I had a colleague working with me. I remember it very clearly that I went to my boss on a Friday morning. My boss at the time was Dave, a boring, predictable Yorkshire man. And I faced up to it. I took full responsibility for the mistake I made. Dave took a chance on me in the sense that it turned a wreckage situation into a winning one. Yes. He said, it takes a very strong person to come forward and take full responsibility. Now let's deal with what we need to do to come up with a solution. That lesson for me was a great lesson at the very beginning of my career. And it was for free. I didn't pay for it because yeah. generally I paid for my MBA training down the line. Uh, that lesson taught me that you, as a leader, you always should support people. When uh, things go well, it's people's um, merit and credit. When things go wrong, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. and I employed that, uh, that learning and I use it all the time in my, uh, in my daily activity, even now. Um, I also learned at a very early stage that um, you need to be humble and to learn from everybody. Preconceptions, biased, they don't really have a place. And at that very early stage of my life, I learned to be flexible and uh, be open to get inspiration from uh, everybody and every situation around me. It's very interesting because so many leaders that I speak to on this podcast, we've been running three years now, we've had 200 episodes and the majority all have a, a moment early in their career where someone gave them a chance. They may have made a mistake. They, they may have been in a position where someone gave them that opportunity and it dramatically changed the direction of their life. And that's another example with, you know, your example with Dave as well. Um, one of the, the things that businesses and leaders struggle with is creating that balance between innovation hubs that are separate enough to encourage free thinking um, but also ensuring that those innovation hubs and their direction are in alignment with the strategic direction of the business to keep them accountable and to keep them uh, in line with business thinking. And I know one of your previous roles at Merck was head of business innovation. So I wanted to understand your views on how does a business like Merck manage this balance between freedom and alignment? You know, what lessons could other businesses and other industries take away from you and your peers in the pharma and healthcare industries in that regard? Um, I think pharmaceutical industry is ahead of the game in embracing innovation and bringing that into the daily activities. Mm -hmm. 
pharmaceutical companies have recognized very early that um, innovation happens in the most um, uncommon situations and circumstances. Pharmaceutical companies, they teamed up with academia, with universities, to make sure that all those uh, early inno innovative ideas are brought to life in a commercial environment. At Merck, leadership um, is carried out by principles. And those principles behind the um, business decisions, I think, are really important in creating, in creating the right environment for people to be innovative and to carry on ideas. First of all, at Merck, there is a, a, um, an understanding, a, a tolerance uh, for mistakes and failures. And we have a culture that we are progressing every day in which one has to try it out, fail fast, learn, come out of it a better person with better ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really important. 30 years ago, there was punishment if you failed. And I come from a country, my home country, Romania, an ex-communist country was actually, you know, promoting that punishment for failures. Yes. At Merck, I have been very lucky because Merck has been um, the first pharmaceutical company in the world with a rich heritage of 350 years. The lifetime was achieved and is sustainable only by having the right attitude in embracing people and embracing ideas. And I think that innovation is um, uh, in Merck's DNA, if you if yeah. you have to talk about it. I just, as a leader today, I just want to make sure that I created the right uh, trustworthy climate at work where people feel um, free to share their ideas, not being afraid of the circumstances. We have, um, a high impact culture initiative that we are driving. And that's very much around uh, accountability, um, about um, uh, disagreeing, debating, and deciding about raising the bar. All of these principles are really crucial to promoting innovation and comfort that people can try out, can fail, can learn, can move on. So I'd like to explore that a little bit more because I know, you know, Merck had challenges around the development of your COVID vaccine, and it was, you know, widely reported. And I'd, I'd love to explore that in a little bit more detail, not from a critical perspective, but from a culture and an innovation perspective. You are one of the world's vaccine giants. One report I read placed you as the world's second largest vaccine developer. So there must have been huge expectation, both internally and externally, that Merck would take a lead in developing COVID vaccines. When this failed to happen, at least to the level that you would have hoped, what effect did this have on the culture and, and the motivation within Merck and what was done to rebuild that motivation and reinstall that pride? Um, Merck has a focused leadership um, approach to the core areas in which we excel. And those are neurology, immunology, oncology, while uh, preserving our heritage as a um, um, leading company in fertility. Mm -hmm. Having said that, Merck is a holding company. We have a life science business that provides all the active pharmaceutical ingredients, all the processing materials for the manufacturer companies, being those vaccine manufacturers or other drug manufacturing companies. Yeah. So on that front, we were absolutely crucial in participating in the vaccine development and solving such a huge problem that uh, the world has faced in the, in the face of the pandemic. 
Um, the rollout of the pandemic specifically in the UK was um, absolutely exemplary. And yeah. that showed the good, the good collaboration between the private and the public sector. And uh, that set the scene for future drug development. And um, I think that task force approach that was very objective focused, really leveraging the key skills that public and private bring to the table was really crucial. The pandemic must have turned Clearly, it did turn approaches to innovation and R&D on their heads when you think about the levels of collaboration, the, the time to market, the speed, um, and perhaps more so than ever with the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, every industry had to turn its innovation and its creative thinking on its head, but the pharma industry was perhaps the most clear demonstration of that success. How has the pandemic changed your approach to innovation within Merck? You know, what are some of the, the key areas, the key examples of the way it's accelerated or changed your, your thinking when it comes to R&D and innovation? Um, I think we always, as a company, had an open approach to, um, to embrace and uh, to foster ideas coming from within the company or outside the company. At Merck UK, um, I would like to add that we have constantly worked with uh, the regulators, NHS, NICE, to bring products to patients in a timely manner to really improve access uh, irrespective of uh, the postcode lottery in the UK. Yeah. Right now, NHS in a, is in a very sticky situation, I might say. And I think the learnings from the COVID rollout uh, um, vaccine are absolutely crucial in taking those challenges and dealing with them in a collaborative manner uh, on a short-term basis and a long-term basis. NHS and the industry, they want the, the same thing. They want to deal with the patient backlog in the short term, and they want to deal with the challenges that um, are facing the healthcare system in the long term. I personally believe that embracing um, a personalized healthcare agenda in dealing with uh, those challenges is absolutely crucial. At Merck, we uh, have done a lot of research and we worked with stakeholders from across the public and the private sector in identifying those areas. Shared decision-making when it comes to patients uh, going for treatment, supported self-management when it comes to adherence to treatment are two major initiatives that I believe NHS and the pharmaceutical industry can work together on to deal with uh, the numbers of GP appointments, any uh, appointments, the complicated surgeries that, that are down the line. And NHS data have actually showed that no, don't, those numbers are coming down when the patient has the right knowledge and is an integral part of the decision and is taking on responsibility for self-management. One of the words that sort of featured a couple of times in that answer was around the collaborative approach that industry and the NHS is taking. Do you think the what's happened over the last three years, particularly with the pandemic and the way people have come together out of necessity to work more closely together. Do you think it's broken down some of those barriers that have traditionally existed between industry, between consultants, between the NHS and, and other private healthcare providers? Do you think there's an element of trust and collaboration that didn't exist before the pandemic? I think uh, we have made uh a lot of progress in that collaborative approach. Yes. Um, 
some of the barriers have definitely been broken down. Mm -hmm. And I believe all the parties involved have a, a high awareness of the importance of the objective, of the common objective we all have in mind. And that is the patient. Yeah. Value to patients, um, bringing down the waiting times, bringing down the waiting lines, um, having individualized treatment in a personalized manner brought to patients, I think is really important. And um, both the regulators, NHS, NICE, the industry are recognizing um, all of these uh, um, challenges and the progress that has been made post-pandemic. When we look sort of broader um, out into the world, there are enormous challenges facing governments, facing society, facing businesses as well. And we need a new blend of leadership qualities in order to tackle many of these challenges, because some of them are, some of them feel bigger and many of them actually are bigger, you know, and they're all coming to us at once, the environmental crisis, the economic crisis, many other challenges on a global basis. What's your view on what is the most critical leadership competency for leaders in the pharma industry and more and, and in other industries as we move into the middle of the then move into the middle of the century towards 2030 what key competencies do we need to see in leaders in order for us to to tackle these challenges um i think leading by principles mm -hmm. by ethical principles is really important these days you mentioned the economic challenge you mentioned um um, the environmental challenge. I would like to add the healthcare challenge. Yes. Because that's a crisis informing. And very much like the climate challenge, I think the healthcare challenge is just building up and at times being a national issue, seeming to be a national issue, we don't give it the same importance that some of the global challenges uh, might be given. Yes. Uh, I if you think of the way that um, um, politicians, that governments are dealing with the climate change, they went by uh, imposing KPIs and by teaming up with important industry players in driving those KPIs. Mm -hmm. Healthcare crisis that is building up, in my opinion, should have the same approach. Yeah. For that to happen, one of the major leadership qualities that um, should be displayed at the global level I think is listening, self-awareness, yeah. and really focusing on solutions in a sustainable manner. If we do more of that, I believe we would have better outcome both in the short term and the long term. So in terms of teaming up with industry players, we've seen an incredible convergence of bioscience and health and tech sectors over recent years, and especially with some of the big tech industries entering these spaces. You can think about Google and Apple and Amazon as three obvious examples. But their entry also has the potential to change the shape of these industries of the healthcare, pharma and, and bioscience industries in many ways, including how they're funded and what the focus of innovation is or should be as a result, where the transparency of the industry sits. What's your view on the changes and opportunities within this convergence? Do you generally welcome the, the evolution of tech companies into these industries? Do you see it as a, as a positive development or what are the challenges with them? I think um, being in a dynamic industry is really appealing to me because um, I always embrace change. I don't like uh, stalled situations. 
in my life or elsewhere. Just the fact that I changed the 10 plus positions with Mercury, probably every two, three years, yes. probably are testament to the fact that I am an agent of change myself. Um, I, I do think having different players with uh, different perspectives participating in solving the challenge that we have at the moment in healthcare is really important because they bring fresh views to the to the table. Yeah. They also bring different finance, and we don't we, we shouldn't underplay the importance of investment when it comes to progress. If we look again at the parallel um, problem, which is the climate change. Obviously, the governments are driving down KPIs. You mm -hmm. have the traditional manufacturers that have to comply to certain um, limits in terms of carbon, carbon emission. But it is really the novel technology players that are shifting the whole um, environment, then they are yeah. making the progress. You have the solar cells, you have the windmills, you have a lot of other technologies that are creating opportunities. The same is valid, I believe, in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Once you have data brought in, I think the whole perspective of research and development for pharmaceutical industry is changing. The clinical trials, potentially, they become cheaper and they become more effective if you have that added um, complexity and benefit that data brings in and you have the right interpretation in uh, driving the results that will benefit the patient. Yeah. Leaders are often defined by their first 100 days in office, and coincidentally, we're witnessing that more broadly at a political level right now in the UK. Um, you were appointed to MD, as you said, in, in 2020, and I understand you yourself place a lot of importance on what that first 100 days looks like. So I wanted to understand what defined your first 100 days in office, particularly given the, the peculiar situation you found yourself in coming in in a remote environment, and, and how have those first 100 days defined the role you have as a leader now? You know, what are the decisions and actions that you took then that still have relevance and application in your in your day-to-day -day delivery as managing director now? So let me just start by saying that um, the, the building blocks to my 100 days uh, in the office um, are really important. So first of all, I came into an organization that was doing quite well. Mm -hmm. It was the pandemic, but the team was engaged, was um, uh, inspired, was stable. The business was doing well. So when I came in for the first 100 days, I also knew the business. I wasn't a newcomer that had yes. to understand a lot of the general business. Um, I had to understand the local environment, the local complexity. So I took the 100 days to get to know the people and to listen. And I know that most uh, leaders are compelled when they come in for the first 100 days to, um, to put a mark and to make changes. Mm -hmm. Changes, they are not always good. I think it is really important when you make changes to be uh, in control, at least to understand what's going on. Changes could be incremental to take a great a good performance to great. Yes, it could be uh, absolutely disruptive if the performance is not what um, uh, needs to be. But I think you really have to adapt your first hundred days to the environment and uh, to what the overall objective is. Listening and leading are really important 
in my first 100 days in the office, I tried to listen and lead um, on an equal footing, if you like. Mm -hmm. Some of my colleagues, they commented on that balance of leading and listening. And in their experience, they said that generally when uh, a new general manager comes in a position, uh, one will start very high on listening, but low on leading. And then over time, those behaviors will switch. Yes. The feedback I received was that uh, um, I was high on listening and high on leading, and I'm doing my best to keep those two behaviors at the same level. Two and a half years down the line, I still listen. I hope I can, I still lead. And the feedback that I seek continuously doesn't tell me otherwise. So I think I'm, I'm doing okay and the team enjoys it. I'm, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. The, one of the key benefits to listening is clearly knowledge acquisition. Um, we gain through listening um, with, with, with confidence and intent. One of the things I speak a lot about on this podcast and, and in the keynotes that I deliver is around how we, how we harness that knowledge within a business, how we manage it, how we retain it and how we disseminate it across the business. There are lots of knowledge silos, either intergenerational or interdepartment that are, that are confined. And I'd love to know what you do within Merck to ensure that you maximize that knowledge management and dissemination across the organization, because I, I think it's a very underrated and neglected skill within a business to actually recognize where the knowledge is and ensure it is adequately spread across the organization Someone like Merck, how do you do that? Um, so just to set the scene, I listen to understand. Mm -hmm. I don't listen to respond. Yeah. Having said that, I never believe that knowledge is power if it's uh, just with one person. I believe that shared knowledge is power. Yes. And as a leader, knowledge doesn't give you a sustainable strong position but that people the people that come along with you and share in the knowledge that ensures sustainability and strength mm -hmm. at merck leadership is really crucial in making sure that knowledge is shared and i see a lot of development and a lot of progress in my last 25 years with the company in terms of that leadership development you had the power culture in terms of leadership 25 years ago. Right now, it's a, um, it's a culture which is very much um, appropriate for a matrix organization. It is a lot of shared knowledge. The whole climate has changed. The leadership profile has changed. Mm -hmm. And at Merck, I think we ensure that knowledge is shared just by having the right leadership profile and by having the right organizational culture that is driven forward. So if you have the right leadership, then, then what, what do you feel are the main inhibitors to, to more expansive innovation and imaginative innovation in the pharma sector over the next decade? Are the, are the barriers regulatory? Are they financial? Are they market conditions? Is it the talent deficit that we're currently seeing, we seem to have in a lot of industries? What are the main inhibitors to, to broad and expansive innovation in the sector? Um, I think all, all of the above, if I was to <laughs> them. In reality, um, we are in the most regulated industry. Yes. Um, there are countries that obey regulations. 
and there are countries that um, um, allow innovation as long as uh, the ethical principles prevail. Yeah. I think if we uh, move as industry in various countries, particularly in Europe, if we move from that um, um, innovate by rules to innovate by principles, that change will be absolutely crucial in uh, driving further innovation. If we put aside some of the individual organizations' agendas, like, uh, I don't know, securing a budget in the short term, mm -hmm. and focus on the objective which sits with patient and patient benefit, that would be also a very good step in making the right changes and embracing innovation. We see a lot of collaboration among industry players as well. That is driven because the patient segments are becoming narrower mm -hmm. with um, the human genome, with all the genetic testing, medicines that bring right value to the right patient are um, much more tailored, much more uh, addressing much more narrower segments. Yes. Having said that, the clinical trials are becoming more expensive. So you see a lot of collaboration between companies in driving development of a specific product and bringing that to the market. If you innovate by principle rather than innovate by rule, as you said at the beginning of that answer, does that change the place that you start or the first questions that you ask yourself? How does it change the innovation process from the very, very beginning? What, what's the, what does it look like in terms of difference? I think it starts with uh, responsibility and accountability. Mm -hmm. um, at the very beginning, it starts with a scientist that has the courage to take responsibility and be accountable mm -hmm. for the idea, the project, whatever it is taken to, to the table. Yes. And that goes within the organization a responsible, accountable organization that is run by principles can stand straight whatever hurdles are coming uh, its way. The regulators would be um, in the same manner, accountable and responsible for the decisions that are made now and in mm -hmm. the long term for patients and society. And all of that for me relates to principles rather than rules. Yes, understood. Merck has a Mobilize for Growth strategy where it aims to become the global 21st century science and technology pioneer. I'd love to spend a couple of minutes just talking me through the, the foundations for this strategy and how these foundations were developed. Um, so often we have large brands with big aspirations and, and, and great strap lines, if you like. They don't always materialize. They don't, they're not always delivered in practice. So I'd love to understand what sits beneath the phrase or the strap line? What are the foundations of that Mobilize for Growth strategy? Um, as I said before, Merck is uh, quite old, 350 years in the field. As a company, it does have the ambition to be in the field for another 350 years. And I do hope to be around to see that. Um, Merck has been collaborating for generations to tackle some of the world's most challenging diseases. And we worked hand in hand with uh, 
the scientific community, with the NHS, the policymakers, just to make sure that patients have the have access to the right treatments when they need it. Um, some brilliant ideas have been born at Merck, and as a company, we have a rich heritage of uh, innovating for generations to support people at every stage um, of life. We do pride ourselves um, as being in the field of creating, improving, and prolonging life. Um, some of these ideas, they cross between um, life sciences, performance materials, and healthcare. And these are the three major businesses that we, we do at Merck. And at times we have been leaders in some of the areas and we still keep leadership positions these days in some very specific either therapeutic areas or uh, scientific areas that relate to the other businesses. Winner, as we get towards the end of the podcast, I wanted to explore a little more your own decision to move into pharma. I, I understand you were set for a career in nuclear physics. Um, your father passed away from cancer in 1988, um, potentially as a result of the Chernobyl disaster. And you decided as a result to dedicate your career to finding ways to positively impact on the lives of patients. And I wondered how that decision continues to influence the work you do today? How does it underpin your, your approach and your leadership and your principles and in, in the work you do now? Indeed, I am a nuclear physicist by training and I, um, I have a real passion for science. I was really passionate uh, for my potential career in the late 80s in yes. a nuclear plant. Um, Chernobyl happening, that event has changed my life forever. Yeah. On his deathbed, my father, who was 47 at the time, dying of lung cancer. He asked me to give up smoking. <laughs> I smoked socially at the time. And he also asked me to give up on my ambition in nuclear physics. I wasn't emotional about it. It yes. was the least I could do. And after him passing away, I switched completely to a different field of physics. I think at the time, subconsciously, I wanted to make a difference to the country I lived in. Yes. I wanted to make a difference to the patients. My father dying of cancer had no choice and had no chance in the late 80s. There was no treatment really that would have prolonged his life considerably, which is not the case today. If you ask me whether I had it all planned out, no, I haven't. Mm -hmm. I didn't know which way to go, but there were some traits that I employed along the way that eventually would took me to that uh, subconscious decision to help patients with cancer at some point in my life. Yes. Um, I never said no to any opportunity that allowed me to be more, to contribute more, to be better. I had a hunger for knowledge. Mm -hmm. I had a drive to break into the pharmaceutical industry. Merck has given me the chance because at the very beginning, I joined the performance materials life science division along the way. And only later I could uh, take a position in the pharmaceutical sector. That position, my first general manager position in the pharmaceutical um, 
sector of Merck was actually back in Romania. Right. And I had such a great sense of achievement because at last I could go back to the country where my father died without a chance. And I could make a difference to so many patients through the medicines that uh, Merck was producing and continues to innovate and produce these days. So I assume I never left my father behind. And even nowadays, when a patient story comes my way, there is always a deja vu. And there is always a promise to myself that I will do everything I can to help that patient, being that one or being 1,000. Thank you for sharing that story with us, Doina. That's I really appreciate that. It's a lovely, um, a lovely credit to you and a tribute to your father that you are, you know, many, many years on, three decades on, that you have got to the top of Merck in the UK and Ireland and, and you are still fulfilling that mission. I think that's a that's a wonderful story. Um we always end the new panel podcast by asking our guests to offer one or two final pieces of wisdom or advice for our listeners to to go away and potentially activate in their business when it comes to building and maintaining a thriving culture of innovation what would those pieces of wisdom be from your perspective what would you like to leave our guests with every company is made of people a culture is driven by each individual in a company and it comes down to personal motivators and personal drive to make a change to see through the change if I look back at my life, if I look back at the start of my professional career, there were two important verbs that I always philosophically paid attention to, to be and to have. When uh, one is young, one would like to have a house, a car, money in the bank, nice holidays. Coming from uh, an ex-communist country, to have was um, not important enough because it was limited and uh, you didn't know what was the outside world offering in terms of to have. My focus was constantly on to be. I was hungry for knowledge. I wanted to be more. I wanted to contribute more. I wanted to be better every day. 30 years down the line, my focus is still on to be. And uh, I dare say that I have a fulfilling life. I have a great family. I still focus on to be, and I am really grateful for what I have. Having more, it's always possible. But is it really that important in one's life? I think uh, if you want to have that continuous sense of achievement, one has really to focus on to be. Wonderful words to uh, to finish the podcast. It has it's been a pleasure to be with you today, Doina. Thank you so much, and to have this conversation as well. And I I appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about what Doina and her team does, go to mercgroup.com, m-e-r-c-k-group.com. You'll also find the links and the notes that accompany this podcast. And if you've enjoyed this episode of the new PNL podcast or any of the other episodes, please do take a moment to rate us or review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And I invite you to come back next week for Series 5 in the new PL. It'll be our 201st episode, an incredible milestone for us 
and something that we are keen to celebrate with you. So finally, I'm Paul, host of the new PNL. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.